I'd encourage you to have your Bibles open. This is a, a long passage, and I'll refer to different parts of it. And uh, so whether you turn it on or have a Bible, um, have it open as we go through this passage together. Julie was a first-year university student. She was long ways away from her family on the other side of the continent. She just finished her first semester of school and she wrote this note to her parents. Dear mom and dad, just thought I'd drop you a note to let you know what's going on with me. I've fallen in love with a guy named Jim. He's a really great guy, but he quit high school a few years ago to get married. That didn't work out. We got a divorce last year. We've been going out for several weeks and we're thinking about getting married in the fall. Until then, I've decided to move into his apartment. Oh yeah, I dropped out of school last week so that I could get a job to help support Jim. I'm hoping I'll be able to finish college sometime in the future. Mom and Dad, I just want you to know that everything I've written so far in this letter is a lie. None of it is true. I did uh, get a C- minus in French class and I failed my math class. And it is true that I'm going to need some more money for tuition payments. Could you send me a couple hundred dollars? Thanks a bunch. Love, Julie. Two days later, she received a check in the mail from her parents. Julie knew that life is all about perspective sometimes. She could have started right off with her poor grades and her need for money, and she knew that her parents would have thought about that in an unnerved and disappointed way. Instead, she started off by making them full of anxiety and worry over her life choices and then eased and relaxed them as she told them what was really going on. Life is about perspective. There was a man who asked God how long a million years was to him. And God said, a million years to me is like a day. And then he, the man said, well, how much is a million dollars to you? And he said, a million dollars is like a penny. So he gathered himself up and he said, God, can I have one of your pennies? God said, sure, just a second. God, God has a different perspective, a different point of view than we do. Over the past few weeks, we've followed Habakkuk. We've, we've seen how he was struggling with his, looking around at his nation and seeing the corruption and he not seeing God do anything about it even though he'd been praying. And then when God gave his answer that he is doing something, he didn't like it very much. He didn't think God was living up to his holiness and his goodness. And so last week, we learned from God's second response that God was being true to his nature and his purposes. He just had a much bigger perspective than Habakkuk did. He wasn't just about punishing people for their corruption. He was about much more than that. His plan was larger than that. And although his plan may involve using people that are corrupt, he... Uh, didn't, that doesn't mean that he approved of them. His purpose is that the world would be filled with his glory, that his presence would be known like the waters that cover the sea. This morning, we come to Habakkuk's reaction to what God revealed. The last verse in chapter 2, 2.20, says this. God finished his second response by saying this. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all of the earth be silent before him. 
We don't know how long Habakkuk was silent before this majestic revelation of who God is. But when he did speak, it says that he prayed. And the phrase on Shigianoth that, that's in uh, some of your translations, um, combined with at the end of verse 19, it says, for the director of music on stringed instruments, makes us think that this was a, a, a praise song that Habakkuk wrote and sang and, and that people sang to God. So Habakkuk, he approaches God with a song of praise and he begins with awe and wonder at who God is. He praises God for his awesome deeds and his fame. And he's gonna elaborate on what all these are in verses three to 15. But he praises God and then he asks God, would you repeat these things that you've done in the past in our day? Would you, would you make your fame famous again? Would you do what you did before in our day so that we can, we can experience you? And as you do, remember mercy as you bring down wrath on the corruption. And then verses 3 to 15, they're a poetic description of what theologians call a theophany. A theophany is a visible appearance of God. So Habakkuk, he, he sings this poetic prayer song to the God who's revealed himself, and, and he sings both in praise of what God has done in the past and for what he hopes to experience God doing in the future. So it begins by saying that God came from Taman and Mount Paran. It's a little weird that he wouldn't say that God came down from glory, in glory from heaven, but this refers back to the Exodus. This is um, where the Israelite people were in slavery in Egypt, and God came in to bring them out of slavery, and he, he brought them across the Red Sea and through uh, some desert and to a place where he established his covenant with them and the terms and everything. And the places, these are some of the places that he went through, Mount Paran and, and Taman. And so he's saying that, he's referring back to when they first started their relationship with him. And then the symbolic and metaphorical language that's used here is not describing events exactly how they happened. It's more about the feeling of God's absolute power over nature, people, and, and um, power structures. So Habakkuk, he sings about God's glory and his power and how it fill, his glory fills the heavens like flashes of lightning. And the solid ground trembles at his arrival and the mountains that were symbols of, of solidness, of, of um, immovability, of stability, they crumble and they collapse before him. Him who, who is the only secure, eternally secure, solid, stable one as he comes in and accomplishes his purposes and his plan for his people. Plague and pestilence spoken of, and this is, this is part of the power God displayed over Pharaoh as he was bringing the people out of Pharaoh's power. Verse eight, asks some rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question is a question that you know the answer, but it's said for an effect. So he asks, were you angry with the rivers and streams? The obvious answer is no, he wasn't angry with them. He was, uh, verse 13 says he was coming to deliver his people. But the effect is that he came with mighty power like horses and chariots that came in 
and nothing stood in their way as they split the sea and as, as he went through the rivers on his way to victory. He's victorious over any enemy and nothing can stand in his way as he comes to accomplish his purposes. Verse 9 talks about the bow and this symbolizes power and battle. And arrows are used in Old Testament poetry to, uh, about bringing judgment and punishment on enemies. So again, God's control over the waters, the mountains, the rivers is evident in verses 9 and 10 and, and points back to the power God displayed as he brought his people out of Egypt in the Exodus. And then verse 11 talks about the sun and the moon standing still. And this alludes back to Joshua 10. This is another time when God was bringing his people into the promised land. He was establishing them there. And five kings of Amorites came in and, and attacked. And as Joshua was fighting them in the battle, God made the sun and moon stand still until they had victory. The threshing of verse 12. This is another Old Testament way of talking about God's judgment. And it was a common image that the people knew. You threshed the grain, you trampled it, or you crushed it, and, and you separated the, the wheat from the chaff, and, and the chaff you threw away. And so God is coming in. It's a symbol of God delivering his people as he threshed the nations. And then verse 13 explains that the purposes in all these displays of power and judgment is, is for him to come and deliver his people and specifically his anointed one. And this, uh, this is probably a re reference to the Messiah, the one who is going to come, the Savior, the King, who is going to come in the line of David and, and, and rescue his people. It's this promised uh, Messiah that the people were longing for. In the Exodus, God came in and he displayed his power over Pharaoh and miracle after miracle of his uh, as he was um, showing his power over Pharaoh and then he he split the Red Sea so the Israelites could cross and then the Pharaoh changed his mind he came after them with his horses and chariots and he went into the sea on the dry land like the Israelites had and God allowed the water to crash over them and and, and all that imagery of the water crashing over so as Habakkuk he sings this song of remembering God's control and his, his powerful actions in the past, it's, it's also a beautiful image of what's, what God's going to do, his future actions. In verse 16, it talks about God's response, or, or Habakkuk's response to this display of, of power that God displayed as he came in in the past and rescued his people. It says his heart was thumping, his lips were quivering, his legs were trembling. He's so in awe of, of God as he came in and rescued his people with majesty and with strength and with power. As Habakkuk sings, or he realizes that uh, the revelation that God has done in the past is also a vision of what he's going to do in the future. He will come to deliver again. He will keep his promises. His promises are true. He will defeat evil. He will liberate the oppressed. He will bring justice. He will right all wrongs. Habakkuk's questions, they've been answered. The start of the book talked about how Habakkuk was confused by God, and he looked around, and he didn't see God acting, and he was like, God, you're, you're, you're not doing, and when God finally told him what he would do, 
he was doubting God, like you're not being God the way you should. He, was, he had questions and God just wasn't acting the way he should act. But, when he brought his, but, but what he did was he brought his questions to God again and he chose to keep trusting, to keep believing, to keep waiting and God revealed his answer in chapter two and that led to this song of revelation that God is being God the way God should be God. He is keeping his promises. He is maintaining his integrity. He is maintaining his holiness. He's so much bigger, more amazing, and greater than Habakkuk ever imagined. Habakkuk's circumstances didn't change. Corruption was still going on around him. The Babylonian army was still coming in to defeat Judah. But Habakkuk's perspective, his attitude, his way, the way he saw things, was changed. Corey ten Boom is a, a Dutch Christian and a writer. She, she and her family helped protect Jews in, uh, against Nazi authorities. And uh, she wrote the famous book, The Hiding Place. Well, she was asked to speak a lot. And she would bring an embroidered cloth. And she would show the front side of all these threads working uh, a beautiful picture, working together to make this beautiful picture. And she'd say, this is God's plan for your life and uh, for our lives. And, and then she would flip it around and she'd say, and, and it was all knotted and you couldn't tell what was going on on the other side. Uh, it just didn't make anything that made sense. And she would say, this is how we see our life. And uh, Habakkuk, his view went from seeing that backside of the, of the embroidered cloth, all these knots and it didn't make sense to him, to seeing a glimpse of God's perspective, this beautiful picture that he's painting through people and through history. This change in perspective is so profound that Habakkuk can, he can finish his praise song with supernatural faith. At the end of verse 16, he says that he will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. No longer is Habakkuk questioning God. No longer is he wondering what God is doing. He's heard from God, he's reflected on God's glory and, and how he has revealed himself in the past. And he knows that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He knows God will act to deliver his people. He, he knows that God is trustworthy, so he trusts and he waits patiently for what God's going to do. And he knows that God is acting like God, the way God should act. Verse 17 uh, expresses the extent of his trust. If the fig trees don't produce, that was a delicacy that they had. It was kind of like, if I don't get the new TV that I ordered, the old TV still works, it's kind of a first world problem. The delicacy of fig trees, if they don't produce, uh, life goes on. Grapes were similar. They were what they used to make their drink, and, and, but there's still water. So he said, if those things, I still trust in you, if those things go away, but olive oil, olives produced oil, and oil was used to fuel the lamps for light and the stoves for cooking. So then he said, if, if, if the olives don't produce, I'll still trust you. And that's getting a little harder. And then even harder, he said, if the fields don't produce and the sheep and the cattle die, these are what produced food and, and, and helped with their labor. And, 
if those died, if those things didn't produce, uh, life becomes tra tragic. You don't have the necessities. And so what Habakkuk is saying is no matter whether I just have to struggle a little bit or a whole lot, no matter what happens around me, no matter how bad life seems, if, a, if it's just some luxury stuff or the necessities, I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will be joyful in God my Savior. There's a story about a traveler. He was hiking through the desert for some reason. It must have, must have broke down in his car or something, but he was, he was walking through the desert. The sun was beating down on him and his water was getting really low. And he knew that if he didn't get water soon, he was gonna die. He kept hiking to, and he saw this cabin way ahead and he's like, if I can just make it to that cabin, maybe I can find some water. So he hiked to this cabin, he barely made it, he was so thirsty, he found an old well, he found the cabin abandoned, he started pumping this well, nothing came out of it. It was just dust. And then he noticed that there was a tin can attached to the pump with a note inside. And the note said, Dear Stranger, this pump is all right as of June 1932. He was walking through a year or so later. I put a new sucker washer in it, and it should last for, for many years. But the washer dries out, and the pump needs to be primed. Under the white rock, I buried a jar of water out of the sun and corked up. There's enough water in it to prime the pump, but, if, but not if you drink any from it first. Pour about a quarter of the water into the pump, let it soak into the washer, and then pour the rest medium fast and then pump like crazy. You will get water. When you're done, fill it up, fill up the water bottle again, put it under the rock so the next stranger can, can have some water. Have faith, this well has never run dry. What Habakkuk is demonstrating, the faith he is demonstrating is this kind of faith, the faith that it would take to pour the only water you know you have in faith that you get a whole lot more. Unlike Desert Pete, who the wanderer didn't know, Habakkuk did know God. He knew him to be faithful. He heard of his fame. He experienced him. His faith was secure. The last verse further expresses Habakkuk's trust in God. He uses the phrase, Sovereign Yahweh. It's the strongest name for God available. It represents and expresses how personal, majestic, and powerful God is. This God, Yahweh and no one else, he is the one who Habakkuk needs for strength and for life. And as it talks about him having feet like a deer, uh, one commentator put it this way, sure-footed, untiring, bounding with energy, the Lord's people may expect to ascend the heights of victory despite their many severe setbacks. The heights of the earth, the places of conquest and domain shall be the ultimate possession of God's people. Last week, we talked about Habakkuk 2.4 being the central theme verse for this whole book. And the, book. and the verse says, See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by faith. Habakkuk, the one who questioned God, who doubted God, who wondered about God, became a shining example of a righteous person living by faith. His experience shows that, that questions about God, doubts about God, feelings of, of wondering 
whether God is being God the way he should be, these are not bad to have. They don't exclude someone from experiencing God and being part of his plan. It's what we do with those questions and those doubts, those feelings that matter. As we wrap up our series, Bitter Better, a contrast between two prophets, we, um, we've seen that both Jonah and Habakkuk have come face to face with an experience of God not acting like God the way they thought he should. Jonah, he ran. He didn't face those questions and those doubts or bring them to God. He ran from them. He did not want to, to admit that he might be wrong and God might be right. He, he was convinced he was right and God was wrong, and so he ran from God. Even after God pursued him, God told him and explained to him, he kept running, and, and he ran into deeper and deeper bitterness. Habakkuk, he chose to be humble. He brought his questions, his doubts, his wonderings, his feelings about God not being God the way he thought he should be, and he, he brought them to God, and he, he listened. He waited. He watched. He, he, he wanted to hear God's answer, and he, he, he was humble before God and curious about what God would say. And in that humbleness, he realized that he wasn't seeing the w- things the way they really are. He, he allowed God to inform his misunderstanding, and, and he experienced God. He learned that God is in control, that God does have a plan, that he is powerful, that he is acting the way God should act. I read somewhere that around Greenland, there's frigid waters and there's icebergs, lots of icebergs around there. And there's some that are small and there's some that are massive. And if you watch them closely, the massive ones are moving one way while the small ones are moving another way. And it was explained that the small ones are being blown by the surface winds and those will change. But the big ones, the massive ones, are being driven by the deep ocean currents. When we face trials and tragedies, it's helpful to see our lives being subject to two forces. The surface ones that are our circumstances, these change and, and uh, they confuse us. They're, they're unpredictable. They're distressing. But simultaneously with those gusts of wind are the deeper ocean currents that are even more powerful. And those are the movement of God, his sovereign purposes, the the deep flow of his unchanging love. Habakkuk, he, uh, God gave him a deeper understanding of his wise and his sovereign purposes that are much more powerful than the surface winds. Back in verse 13, Habakkuk, he spoke of the anointed one. He was looking forward for the hoped-for king that uh, would deliver his people. He didn't know the details, but he trusted that God would deliver this anointed one. Now we know that this anointed one was Jesus. And Jesus offers us a new perspective today. He offers complete and eternal forgiveness to anyone who who puts their trust in him because of what he did for us. He came and he lived the perfect life. He died the death we deserve, and he rose victorious over 
our sin and our guilt and our shame and victorious over everything. He offers real life that has a new perspective. It sees beyond just what we see around us. Anyone who puts their faith, their hope, their trust in him, who asks them to forgive them of their sin and their guilt and their shame, who, who believes that he does forgive, anyone who gives their life to him to lead because he knows better, they're given new life. We're given the Holy Spirit to work inside of us to give us that new perspective, to give us wisdom, to give us insight and power to live in complete faith like Habakkuk did. The invitation this morning is to come to Jesus. To come to Jesus in faith that he knows better. To ask him to forgive you to lead your life, to ask him to forgive you, to ask him to lead your life, to ask him to give you wisdom and strength, to praise him for who he is and what he has done, to rest in his capable and strong arms. Choose better. Choose Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are always better. No matter what's going on around us, you are better. No matter what we don't understand, you give us deeper understanding. That no matter how scared we are, how hurt we are, how sorrowful we are, or how happy we are, you have a deeper plan. You have a purpose that is eternal and you can, you invite us into it. And we can be a part of what you are doing. And Jesus is better. Help us to choose Jesus. Amen.